chapter of the book of Genesis is where we're going to be as we complete this series Nathan mentioned earlier uh, on failure. Finishing it out today, the third, third uh, message out of this little short brief series on failure. Max Lucado tells a story about a, uh, about a little parakeet named Chippy. Any of you parakeet owners, uh, bird owners out there, just curious? It, let's see, no hands. All right, it should be safe to tell this story, I guess. Uh, a little story named, about a parakeet named Chippy. Well, Chippy's owner loved Chippy, and uh, from the way uh, this story is told, it is a true story that, that really happened. And uh, Chippy was kind of the, kind of the prized possession of, uh, of her owner, and so one day the owner was cleaning out Chippy's cage and decided, I'm assuming because of um, just it's easier and maybe lack of time, decided to use the hose end attachment to the vacuum to clean out the cage. <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of see where this is headed, I guess. And, uh, and so she's, she's vacuuming out the bottom of Chippy's little cage, and, uh, and so her phone rang, and as she picked up the phone, as she turned, she heard at the same time. And so <laughs> in astonishment, <laughs> none of you are bird owners, so this is okay. So in astonishment, she, uh, you know, she, she you know, tosses the phone down, unzips the vacuum. It was one of those with the, with the bag in it and, uh, you know, and reaches in and sees Chippy in there, you know, all covered in dust and everything and, uh, but still alive, which was good. And so she reaches in and grabs Chippy out and, uh, just, you know, looks at Chippy and just in panic and astonishment and all that mixed together. She does the only thing she can think of to clean poor little Chippy off. She runs to the bathroom and she turns on the, the, the tub water, you know, the cold side, and she just, puts Chippy up underneath there and just, you know, just starts doing all of this to get Chippy clean. Well, the dust comes off the poor, however, the poor, you know, parakeet is not doing so well. And so she realizes then what she had done and she, she runs and grabs the hair dryer and <laughs> holds Chippy up and <laughs> just dries Chippy off. So a newspaper actually somehow caught wind of this story and the reporter called and did an interview on her, you know, and just got all this in detail. And then a few weeks later, the, the reporter called back and asked the lady how Chippy was doing just for a little follow-up. And her response was this, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> uh, she just sort of sits there and stares. <laughs> that was her response. You know, failure has a way of doing that. You know, failure has a way of just sort of like, before we even know what happens, it, it pulls us in, spins us around, and spits us out, and we're different. That, that's the nature of of failure. And what we've looked at through this series and these three short messages or two previous messages finishing today is that failure is inevitable. I mean, we live in a fallen world. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. Failure is a part of our lives. We experience failure on a variety of levels. Sometimes that failure can be directly attributed to a sin that we've committed, right? We've fallen short. We rebelled against God. We chose not to do what God wanted. We chose to do what we wanted. Somewhere along the way, we failed. You know, that could be a huge failure, it could be a small failure, it could be moral in nature, a moral failure, it could be a financial failure where we you know, made sinful choices with finances or, or assets or regardless of what it may be, uh, we may have chosen, here it is tax season, you know, to be uh, uh, dishonest on our tax returns, we, you know, we failed in that area and then it came back to get us, it could be a variety of things. Failure runs the, really runs the gamut of, of life experiences and many times that failure is because of a sin that we've committed. Other times the failure has nothing to do with sin, right? We just fell short. I mean, we, we did A when we should have done B, and, and, and there's really no, no sin involved. There was no choice to rebel. 
You know, I think I remember back in high school, I took my driving test, right? And I failed my driving test the first time through. Any others that failed your driving test first time through? You're proud of it. Let's get those hands up. Let's go out and hit something, all right? You know, you're, you're, uh, it was parallel parking to this day whenever we pull up and we have to parallel park downtown. Susie's, I can see it on her face. She's thinking, you got this? <laughs> you know, so if, we, if you ever see me driving through the church park a lot, or anywhere for that matter, make sure I have a lot of space if I'm parking near you because I could fail again. It, it, there's, there's no guarantee. So we all fail, all right? We all fall short. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's not. But failure is an experience that, we all, that we've all been through. What we looked at two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, some of you, that was your very first Sunday, maybe in a long time, maybe ever in church. And you've been back since then. You remember when we looked on Easter Sunday, when we looked at the simple principle that the cross is our drop-off point for our failures. Whether it's sin and we find forgiveness at the cross, or whether it's another type of failure, maybe poor judgment, and God applies grace and he begins to work all things out for good, the cross is the drop-off point for our failure. God does not want us to drag those failures through the rest of our lives, all right? And so last Sunday, that's what we looked at, was moving forward. We drop our failures off at the cross, then what do we do? And what we found last Sunday, we looked at the story of a man named Manasseh, deep in the Old Testament, a man who started off very, very badly. He, He didn't more sin, led the people of, of Judah into more sin, even than the, the, than the uh, ungodly nations around them, the Bible says. And yet Manasseh ultimately used his failure as a, somewhat of a catalyst. It was like a change agent. It was like a spark for a brand new beginning in his life where it reoriented his life to God. And what we learned last Sunday was that oftentimes what happens in our lives is that when we fail, if we come to God on his terms, if we bring that failure to the cross, if it was sin, we come to Jesus for, for forgiveness. We turn from that sin, place our faith in Christ. Or if it's a poor judgment, we come and surrender that to God. We let God begin to work through that. What we often find is that our failure is a catalyst for that new beginning in our lives. Only, however, when it reorients our life to God's lead. Because as we've looked at through this series, let's be honest, typically when we fall, when we fail, it's because we didn't follow God's lead. It led, we, we allowed sin to come into our lives. We pursued something we knew God didn't want or we didn't seek wisdom from him, and ultimately that led to failure. And many times God can use that failure. If we come back to him, he'll use that failure to reorient our lives to him in a brand new way, to the point to where we'll look back and we'll thank God in some ways for the failure because of what he did in our lives as a result of it. It made things get right. You think about when you, you, know, when you decide to go on a diet. There's a point in your life. It's sort of that, that's that catalyst. You know? And maybe it's when you drop something and you can't bend over to get it without going... And you just, you know, today I start my diet, right? It's that catalyst. Many times failure is that way. And it's a catalyst for something brand new to where we ultimately are not then defined by our failure. We're defined by God and by his grace. And he redefines failure so that we don't have to be defined by failure in our own lives. And so through all of that, that's what we've, that's what we've covered these past two weeks. This morning, I want to finish out this series with our, brand, with our final message and just look at a brand new truth, a very simple truth, and this message simply entitled failure, dot, dot, dot. Failure is not an end. It's not a period. There's something to come when we come to God on his terms. Failure, dot, 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 steering clear. It would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, for us, even though God forgives and even though God restores and even though God meets us at our deepest, worst point of failure, even though he applies grace and even though he applies forgiveness, wouldn't it be much easier if we could just steer clear of failure in the first place? You know, imagine for a minute that, that you're, you're all dressed up. I mean, you're, you're more dressed up than you've been in 10 years. All right? You got your best outfit on you. You went shopping. You got something that you really like and you've got it on. You've got this big event that's going on and, and it's about to start. So you're leaving the house, say, an hour early. 
and uh, you're giving yourself, you know, some time to get there in advance, and, uh, and so, so that, that's your plan, and uh, you go out the door, and uh, you remember, because you failed to plan a little bit earlier, you remember something you need to pick up from the store, so you whip into the store, and uh, you get out of your parking place, I mean, you get out of your car, and uh, you're walking into the store, and, and without even realizing what's happened, you trip, you, know, you, you snag, you know, something with your foot, and you fall right in a mud puddle, okay? Just imagine that. Hopefully that wasn't your experience this morning coming to church, but that, that's, that's kind of where you are. And so you get up and you brush yourself off and you forget about what's, what you needed to pick up. You jump back in the car, you go flying back home again, you get cleaned up, you get a new outfit, you get, get everything fixed up again, and then off you go and you come just flying into that event just a few minutes early and you get to your seat and you sit down and the big event you've been waiting for, you made it in time, you're two minutes to spare and you're there. It all worked out well, but would it wouldn't it have been easier to have planned a little bit ahead so you didn't have to stop by the store, so you wouldn't trip and fall into a mud puddle, have to go home, change your clothes, get cleaned up, and then fly like a mad person to the event? Wouldn't it have been easier just to steer clear of trouble to begin with? And I believe that's what God wants for us. Failure comes in our lives, but we don't have to settle for it. There is a better way. There's a principle I want you to see. We're going to begin to unpack it this morning. Simple principle as we finish out this series. Jot it down. The principle is this, that we may not ever eliminate failure in our lives, but we can limit it. We're never going to come to a place where we can say, you know what? I've eliminated failure. If somebody tells you that, run for the hills and don't buy what they're selling. Okay? We will never eliminate failure in our lives. Failure is going to come. None of us have arrived. We've, none of us have made it. None of us are perfect. Failure is going to be an ongoing experience in our lives. However, we don't have to settle for it, and we don't have to expect it because we can see failure eliminate or, or, or uh, limited in our lives. I want us to trace a story of a man here in Scripture who, to me, is one of the saddest stories. We find him in Genesis chapter 25. And his name is Esau. You may or may not be well acquainted with Esau. More than likely, you are more familiar with his twin brother, Jacob. You're probably as well familiar with the three men in Old Testament history that are named all throughout the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That list could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Esau's story is captured in the book of Genesis. The majority of the important parts are captured right there in that chapter in front of you, chapter 25. I'll give you a little bit of a background of Esau. As I mentioned, he was a twin brother to Jacob, and he was firstborn. That's very important for us to recognize. He was born first. He was the oldest in his family. He was, would become, as he grew older, an outdoorsman. He was a skillful hunter, the Bible tells us. He spent much of his time outdoors. He was very good at tracking game, killing game, cleaning game, providing for himself and for those around him. As he would get older, however, he would make a decision that would define him, that he would not ultimately, we have no reference in Scripture where he would ever uh, come back to God, so to speak, where he would find any kind of restitution for the horrible choice and the horrible sin that he would commit here that we'll read of in this passage. Esau is a living example of what it looks like when we live life on our terms without God in the lead. And so let's pick up here, Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 29, and let's read some important points to Esau's story. It says, when Jacob had cooked some stew, it picks up here just a very ordinary everyday occurrence. Jacob and Esau again, twin brothers, Esau being the oldest, 
says, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came from the field and he was famished. He was starving, hungry. Verse 30, and Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Okay, so there's a little bargain going on here. You sell me your birthright and I'll give you some of this that I've cooked. So Esau said to him, behold, I am about to die. He sounds like he sounds like a 12-year-old, doesn't he, who's, who's really, really hungry. <laughs> He's like, I'm about to die, I've got to eat. He says, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. And so he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Well, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went on his way. And then Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, inspired by God's Spirit, gives us a little commentary at the very bottom, and I've highlighted it, where he says, thus Esau despised his birthright. A birthright is something that would have been well understood in the Old Testament days. For us, not so much. We don't operate really today, formally off of any kind of birthright system in our country. But in the Old Testament, for the people of God specifically, a birthright would have been, uh, you could not have attached a dollar figure to the birthright. The birthright went to the oldest son, and Esau would have been able to check that box. He was the oldest. A birthright would have assured the oldest son and his family of the property of his father upon his father's death. It would have assured the oldest son, the birthright would have, assured him of a double portion of his father's inheritance. But even more importantly here for God's people, the birthright would have been a link, a direct link to the line of the Messiah because the lineage of the Messiah would flow through the oldest son, the one with the birthright. And so here Esau comes in, he's hungry, all right? And Jacob is cooking some stew. Esau, the oldest son in the family, who has total, complete, soul uh, uh, rights to the birthright, ends up trading it away. He's not trading baseball cards here, right? This is big, big stuff. And he trades away in a moment of poor judgment. He trades away the birthright that was legally his to his brother. So much would the effect ring through the centuries that today, as I said, we know of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we never have Esau listed in that listing. He would have traded away his birthright, not only exercising poor judgment, but Hebrews chapter 12 verse 16 tells us that it was an unholy thing that he did. And so when we look at Esau's life, what we find here is that he was one who would ultimately display or experience failure because he displayed poor judgment and sin, all right? It was a double dose of what leads to failure. He would have no, uh, no desire to, uh, to seek God's input on this decision. There is no evidence in Scripture that he prayed about this decision. It was a spur of the moment from the gut, out of the flesh, he chose to make this choice that would change his life forever. Now, before we go too hard on Esau and we say, what in the world was this man thinking? I mean, what a, nobody would do something so stupid. Before we get too hard on him, let's just remember as we take inventory of our own lives that there have been instances for us as well, many of us here, where we have also traded away something that was priceless for something that had no value, right? How many times have we traded away, for example, our honesty to do something that we thought would benefit us in the end? How many times have we traded away our character, our integrity for something in order to help us just to get ahead a little bit further than the next guy? How many times have we trade away our purity for just a moment of pleasure that ultimately would mark us and we would have to deal with the fallout of that perhaps for years? 
How often have we traded away a friendship or a relationship so that we could win an argument? I mean, we've done, all of us have done something like this, haven't we? We've all had our, our you know, this stew that Jacob had made was, was made out of lentils. It was like a bean, bean soup. You know, we've all had our bean soup moments, you know, where we've traded away something that was priceless for something that really didn't matter, didn't have any eternal value whatsoever. And what Esau shows us here is what life looks like whenever we exercise poor judgment, whenever we step into sin, and we keep God at a distance. And he reminds us of the cost of failure. How could he have ever, ever seen there when he made that exchange? How could he have ever seen what it would cost him? And it's much the same for us as well. Yes, God restores, and yes, God heals, and yes, God forgives, and yes, God applies grace, and yes, God works good out of bad. But how much better to avoid the failure in the first place? And I think there are a couple of ways we can do that. Many times our failure, as I said, was a, is, is a, uh, a result directly of poor judgment. Let's take a look through Scripture here. Let's begin in Proverbs chapter 1. And let's see what God's remedy is for poor judgment in our lives. I believe as we read in the book of Proverbs, all throughout the book of Proverbs, we'll just look at the first chapter today. But if we look through Proverbs especially, we find that God's remedy for poor judgment that leads to failure is wisdom. Look at what it says here, Proverbs chapter 1. This is just the first five verses of the very beginning of Proverbs. This book would be 31 chapters long, and it's significant as to how it starts, talking about wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. In other words, the whole reason God gave us the book of Proverbs was to help build wisdom in our lives. He says to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Uh, Proverbs, Scripture, holds wisdom, and it keeps it at a premium. I mean, it, it is priceless in a person's life. And it's just so that we understand what wisdom is. Wisdom is different than knowledge, okay? You, you've met people, right, who have a ton of knowledge who make a train wreck of their lives all the time, all right? Knowledge is not enough. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is the application of instruction in a proper way in a certain circumstance. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is not, or, or knowledge says, I should not steal. Wisdom says, in this circumstance where it would greatly benefit me to steal, I'm going to choose not to because this is what it's going to cost me down the road. That's wisdom. It's not just knowing facts, it's applying that, those facts, applying instruction in a certain context, in a certain setting. And in the book of Proverbs, it tells us that the remedy for poor judgment is wisdom. Look at what it says in James 1. You don't have to turn there, just look at it on the overhead. Here's the cool thing. It says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. All right, that's an open invitation to every Christian. Every single believer in this building today, you have open access, free access to the wisdom of God. He says, just let him ask of God, who gives to all generously. All right, he's not just going to sprinkle it and say the rest is up to you. If we ask for wisdom from God, this passage tells us that he will give it generously and without reproach. And so when we look at failure, when we track this back a little bit, failure, which ultimately many times comes because of poor judgment, can be averted, it can be avoided if we only apply wisdom. And God says, hey, I've got it all. I'm the definer of wisdom, and I'll be glad to give it if you just ask it for me. But you know what? We will never ask for it unless we really want it. And so we look at failure in our lives, failure that often comes 
cause of poor judgment. God says, I'll give you wisdom instead. Failure often also comes because of sin, as we've said throughout this series. You know, God has a remedy for that as well, and that remedy is purity. Purity. Look at what it says in Psalm chapter 119. It's an interesting passage. The question is asked by the psalmist, how can a young man keep his way pure? He's not just talking about sexual purity here. How can a young man keep his way pure? Look at the answer, by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments, the psalmist says. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The remedy God offers for sin, in other words, to keep it from happening in the first place, is purity of heart. And the picture that's painted by the psalmist here is that we will only have that purity of heart when our, our, our heart's greatest desire is to honor God, is to know His Word, to apply His Word daily in our lives. That's what leads to a heart of purity. And so when we look at the two things that lead a person to failure, poor judgment, God says, I've got wisdom. Sin, God says, I'll provide you purity, purity of heart as you pour yourself into my word, as you let me mold and shape your life. So how do you put those things together? Well, I really hope I don't lose you here, but how do you put those two things together? I think there's one thing that we can do that'll help us to see all of this worked into our lives. And that one thing is to develop a healthy sense of what it means to fear God. What it means to fear God. For some of you, this is one of your first times in church. You've never heard that phrase before. But you've thought, wow, you know, I've been afraid of God for a long time. That's not what I'm talking about. When we speak about the fear of God, we're not talking about that kind of fear where you're afraid of him. You don't even want to talk to him. You hope he doesn't see you, you know, because he's going to strike you with a lightning bolt. That, that's not what God's going for. Okay? That's not what, I, what I'm speaking of when I talk about a fear of God. What I'm speaking of is a sense of reverence for who God is and admiration for who he is. And not just a reverence and an admiration, but ultimately a decision in our lives where we submit to his lead, we submit to his authority. And here's the thing, in many, many churches today, I'm not talking about the world who doesn't even claim to have a heart heart for God, I'm talking about churches. In many, many churches today, where people assemble just like we've done, who come and sing songs and they pray prayers and they go to Bible studies... And they sit through sermons, and they clap at all the right places, and they bow and close their eyes at all the right places. At churches just like that, what is often lacking more than anything else is a healthy sense of a fear of God. Because we as believers today have lost what it means to fear God. Where we walk through our daily routine without even considering His input. We don't seek Him for the decisions of our lives. We don't bow and surrender to His authority. We don't carry the sense of understanding that God calls the shots in our lives anymore. And we live almost as though, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I want. God can stop me whenever He's ready. That's many times the mentality of most believers where we don't desire him to lead. We don't have any inclination of what it means to walk in, in, in a sense of following him. We don't have any sense of an idea of what it means for Christ literally to be Lord of our lives, Lord of our relationships, Lord of our finances, Lord of, of, of our decisions, Lord of every area of our lives. Uh, churches they have lost that sense. And when we lose the sense of what it means to honestly, truly, genuinely fear God, and we begin to treat him like a nuisance, we begin to treat him as though he's kind of like the third wheel, kind of that awkward part of our lives. When we begin to treat him that way, here's what happens. We don't seek him for wisdom. We don't seek to honor him with a life of purity. And both of those things, when we choose to do that, will ultimately set us up for failure every single time. 
And so if we want to have a hungering for wisdom, if we want to have a real hunger and desire for purity in our lives, it starts when we have a healthy fear of who God is. We recognize him for who he is. We reverence him for who he is. And we surrender and submit to his authority in our lives. So fearing God leads us ultimately to be able to walk in purity, to live wisely, and to limit, not eliminate, but limit failure in our lives. Let me just roll through a few passages of Scripture here that are going to be hopefully helpful for you to see what it means to fear God. Let's look uh, here in the book of Psalm chapter 111. I'm going to roll through these quickly. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, we're not going to have wisdom unless we first fear the Lord. We're going to ask God for wisdom unless we have a healthy fear of who he is. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Look at the next passage in the book of Psalms, chapter 115. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. You want blessing in your life. It starts with a healthy fear of who God is, admiration of who he is, submission to his authority in your life. Psalm 145, verse 19 says, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear, who, uh, who fear him. If you want a fulfillment in your life, it doesn't start with finding the right book or connecting with the right right church or doing the right things. Uh, Fulfillment in our lives starts when we fear God because he's the owner of life. Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life, that they might have, have it more abundantly. And all of that starts in our lives fulfillment whenever we begin to fear him. He says he will also hear their cry and will save them. And so for us to live life based in wisdom, based in purity, it starts ultimately whenever we have a fear of God a healthy fear of who he is. And so my question for you today is, do you desire, honestly desire wisdom in your life? Are you more comfortable just sort of going it on your own? Do you really desire wisdom? Are you willing to beg God for wisdom? Not just an understanding, but an application of that, uh, of that instruction in the right places in the right way. Do you want wisdom? Do you want a heart that's pure? that handles yourself in every circumstance in a way that honors God, in the workplace, under your family's roof, on a date, with your finances? Do you want that kind of purity in your life? Do you hunger for it? It's all going to start when you have a sense of the fear of God. And so we close out this series with a simple principle that I hope will tie it all together. And the principle is this. When we think of steering clear of failure, we stay clear of failure ultimately when we fear God, resulting in wisdom and resulting in purity. How much, think about this for a moment, I don't believe God wants us to go back to our failures unless it's one, to learn something from him, or two, to use it to glorify him as to what he's done since. But when you look back at your failure in your life for just a moment, not to camp there, but just a glance, How many of your failures in your life could have been avoided had you only applied wisdom for the failures that came as poor judgment? Or had you only applied purity for those failures that were a result of sin? How many failures would you have avoided? You know, we praise God for his grace, and rightly so. And we we are amazed at what God does with the heart that comes to him on his terms, where he redefines our failures so they don't define us. We praise God for that. So grateful that's the way he operates. But man, how much better, how much better to avoid the failure and to still have a mind and a heart of wisdom and a heart of purity before God. To know him still as a God of grace and a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of righteousness and a God of blessing. The list goes on and on. How better to know him that way without having to walk through our failures 
how better to avoid them, to limit them as we fear him and as he gives us wisdom and as he builds purity into our lives. Hey, where do you need wisdom today? Where do you need wisdom? Where are you about to go off the rails into the world of failure because you're not using wisdom, because you're exercising poor judgment? Are you willing to ask him for it? And what sin in your life today is going to lead you into an area that one day you will regret, that will lead you to a failure? And are you willing to ask God to give you purity, to help you do the right thing? And are you willing to follow him where he leads? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, we can never, we can never measure can never measure how much failure is avoided because a person exercises wisdom. We can never measure how much sin is avoided in a person's life because they, because they apply purity. They seek to honor God. You can't measure those things. We can't measure what will never happen because we use wisdom, because we apply purity. But God knows. And how much honor and glory he gets whenever we come to him in advance and say, Lord, I don't want to go off the tracks. God, I don't want to suffer, and I don't, want to, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fall short. I don't want to dishonor you or myself or anyone else. God, give me wisdom to make the right choices in every circumstance of my life. What if every day you started praying, God, praying to God for wisdom that he has already said he'll give you? What if your prayer was every day, God, Build into me a hunger for your word. Build into me purity so that I don't have to experience what it feels like when the wheels come off in my life because I've, I've chased a path that ultimately led me to failure, led me to sin. Well, how much better to just start off asking God to work that into your life. And why not make it easier by just asking God to develop in you a sense of a, of a fear of who he is, an admiration, a reverence, an awe, and even a submission to his lead in your life. You know what? You can do that right where you sit today. You can have that prayer. You can have that conversation. For some of you, you may feel like it's too late. You may think, you know what, Brooks? I have failed so miserably in my life. I have committed so much sin. There is no way I could get cleaned up enough to come to God. You know, I, I'm coming to church because I wanted to try to start a new, something new in my life. And, and I know I need God, but I just don't know when I'm ever going to get good enough for him to accept me. And here's the good news. Is that is that you're not going to be good enough for God to accept you, but he's not even working from that perspective. He doesn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He waits for our surrender so that he can begin the cleaning process. And for some of you, maybe right there with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've, you're a good person at heart, but you know you need a Savior. You know there's sin in your life that has never been forgiven. And maybe today God is reminding you of how badly you need him. Maybe it's been a failure in your own life recently. And God has used that to show you that you need rescue. And today, because Jesus has died in your place, because he's already risen again, he has paid for everything. He's paid for all of it. And what he's inviting you to do this morning is to lay down your sin the best that you can. The Bible calls that repentance. And he's asking you to turn from that sin to Jesus and to even invite Jesus to come in and to forgive you of all your sin, and to take over your life from this day forward. The Bible says when we do that, when we surrender ourselves to Christ, and we call on him that he saves us, he forgives us, he wipes the slate clean, and he gives us a brand new heart. And we have a relationship with him that will never end. 
And who knows that maybe the failures that you've experienced have brought you to this moment. And right where you sit, you can see everything change today when you choose to invite Jesus to come in to forgive and to be your Savior and your Lord. God, we have big decisions today, big decisions that surround us. And I pray, God, that we'll get them right this morning. You know, there are some perhaps that are here, and they're on the very verge of very difficult days in their lives. Lord, where they go off into territory that you never designed for them to experience because of poor judgment, because of sin. And Lord, they're going to experience failure unless they choose to apply wisdom, unless they choose to apply purity, unless they choose to fear you for who you are and to follow your lead in their lives. And God, we know it's far easier, far better, much more comfortable for us to just avoid failure in the first place than to have to learn some hard lessons through it. And so God, today we pray, knowing that we'll never eliminate it because we're fallen people in a fallen world. But God, we want to limit it. And so Lord, help us to learn the lessons you'd have us to learn from the places where we've fallen short. But God, help us to put up the guardrails today to be wise, to hunger for more of you, to be pure and to fear you so that we can live a life that brings you honor, consistently brings you honor. So Lord, bless these choices we make now, these next couple of moments. May they put you on display in our lives and lead to a life of fulfillment. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen.